last Sunday, we, we looked just a little bit at the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, why it matters and what it means in your life. And part of what we saw was that this endowment with power from the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the New Testament norm. Uh, it was the New Testament expectation. That is, we saw clearly from the Scripture that the apostolic church of the first century expected all believers not only to be forgiven and changed, but also to be empowered and sent, to be personally transformed by the saving power of the Holy Spirit and to be empowered for ministry by that very same Spirit. As far as the early church was concerned, it was imperative. You be both born again and filled with the Spirit of God. Now, I've been studying this subject, honestly, pretty aggressively since my junior year in college. And invariably, when I mention the subject of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, someone asks the question, what about tongues? Or more pointedly, do I have to speak in tongues? To which my response since my junior year in high school has been, no, you don't have to speak in tongues. You get to. Without a doubt, tongues is one of the most unusual, controversial, and misunderstood topics in the New Testament. In many circles, you can spend your entire life going to church super faithfully and never hear a single in-depth teaching on the subject. So I want to take just a little bit of time this morning and try and unpack it a little bit for you. And just to get us focused and moving, as you're able, would you stand with me once again in honor of the Word of God? And we're going to read together. We're going to read together uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I'll read the plain text if you'll join me in reading the highlighted portions, and that way we'll walk through the passage together. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and this is what the Bible says. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Now, before I dig into the subject of tongues this morning, I do want to back up just a moment, uh, because so far we've looked at a number of scriptures where the Lord Jesus himself promised this coming of the Holy Spirit, promised this endowment with power. And right here in Acts 2.4, we find that promise fulfilled in the Bible. Jesus had said, you need to wait for this. Jesus had said, it's important. You need what's coming. And he said all of that primarily because he wasn't talking about an it. He was talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't talking about an experience of the Holy Spirit. He was talking about the Holy Spirit himself. Um, many people struggle sometimes with the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And part of the reason is because they don't believe they should need something else. They'll say, I've been born again, I have Jesus, how, how could I possibly need more than that? And if you're here this morning and you're coming from that place, I want to assure you, you really don't need another it. You really don't need another thing. So often people get caught up in looking for the next big it, Right? Uh, some, the, the next exciting new experience, the, the next uh, exciting new teaching, the, the next hot new church, the thing that they think is going to make all of the difference. And tragically, an awful lot of people have made the experience of 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit, largely just another it. Uh, Evangelicals say you get it when you're born again. Pentecostals say it comes after that. And both sides tend to miss the point entirely. Because when Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, he was not talking about an experience. He wasn't talking about an id. He wasn't talking about an event. He wasn't talking about experience. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. He was talking about a person, the third person of the Holy Trinity. I'm convinced, by the way, that, that, that that's one of the reasons the Bible uses so very many different terms to describe the experience itself, because it's not primarily about the experience. In the first two chapters of Acts alone, the Bible refers to the experience by calling it the, being baptized with the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit being poured out. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's referred to as receiving the Holy Spirit and being clothed with power from on high. So while the words the Bible uses to describe the experience we've been talking about change often, the one thing that's constant through it all is the Holy Spirit himself because he is the point of the whole thing. Listen to me. God has not called you to have a Pentecostal experience. God has called you to have a day-to-day living relationship with the Spirit of the living God. I want to say that again. God's not called you to have a Pentecostal experience. God's called you to have a day-to-day living relationship with the Spirit of the living God. As I said last week, Jesus didn't die to get you to heaven. Jesus died to get you to God. And in the same way that many Christians have made the gift of salvation more about the experience of heaven than about life with God, in that very same way, other Christians have made the promise of the Holy Spirit more about a one-time exhilarating experience than about spending the rest of your life listening to the Holy Spirit and then going and doing what He says in His power and grace and anointing. So having said all of that then, What is the deal with tongues? What's all this stuff about tongues in the Bible? Now, without a doubt, the subject of tongues has been greatly muddled uh, over the years through various teachings and, and points of confusion, particularly theologies that fixate on an experience rather than on the point of the whole thing. For example, I mentioned last week in our Let's Talk uh, event last Sunday night that many Pentecostal denominations insist that speaking in tongues is, and I quote, the initial public evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, Now, from there, many of them go on to say, if you've never spoken in tongues, you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. Or in some cases, if you've never spoken in tongues, you you don't have the Holy Spirit at all. Now, I have extraordinary problems, extraordinary, extraordinary concerns with that particular doctrine, the most significant of which being you won't find it in the Bible. There's simply no language in Scripture that refers to anything like an initial public evidence of such things. And I always discourage getting too dogmatic about things that the Bible doesn't say clearly. I absolutely believe there are lots of people who've been filled with the Holy Spirit who've not yet spoken in tongues. But, listen carefully, that doesn't mean the gift's not available to them. And I'll get to that in just a little bit. For the time being, however, I want to consider the question, why do some denominations assert that doctrine of initial evidence? Why do some denominations say 
Speaking in tongues is the initial public evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason is because based on the actual examples from the Bible, speaking in tongues following the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit appears to be the New Testament norm. Last week, we looked at the five times in the book of Acts you actually see someone filled with the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to look at them again. And this time, we want to ask the question, did they speak in tongues when the Holy Spirit came on them? The first account involved the very first apostles. You find it in Acts chapter 2. And as we've already read this morning, the Bible says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. In this case, the text is completely clear. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and all of them began to speak in tongues, meaning they began to speak in languages other than their native language that they had never learned intellectually. The second account involves the Samaritan believers in Acts chapter 8, and there the text says simply, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The text doesn't say they spoke in tongues. But it does say, in the very next verse, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Clearly then, when the Holy Spirit came on these uh, Samaritan believers, something obvious, something demonstrable, something self-evident happened, something Simon could readily see, something that captured his attention. Was it speaking in tongues? The text doesn't say. So let's keep moving on from there. The third account involves Saul of Tarsus is found in Acts chapter 9. And in this particular case, we're simply told that Saul is about to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 17, Ananias comes to Saul and says, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, now, we don't actually witness the moment of Saul's baptism in the Holy Spirit, so we can't say for certain whether or not he spoke in tongues. But we can say for absolute certain that he spoke in tongues a lot because later on he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth and said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. By the way, if you know anything about the Christians in Corinth, that means he spoke in tongues a lot. The fourth account involves Cornelius and all the people in his household is found in Acts chapter 10. In verses 44 to 46, we read this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, two things are worth noting here, I think. Number one... When the Holy Spirit came on these Gentile believers, the Bible says they spoke in tongues. And number two, it appears from the text that it was this speaking in tongues that convinced Peter's otherwise skeptical comrades that the Holy Spirit had indeed come, had indeed come on the Gentiles. Notice it says they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues. The Greek word here is gar, translated for, and it, it, it suggests causality. It means they believed because, they believed the Spirit had come on them because, for, they heard them speaking in tongues. Finally, the fifth account involves the Ephesians and is found in Acts chapter 19, where we read, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So, 
In looking at the New Testament examples, what can we conclude? Was the New Testament norm? Not, not to create you know, some extraneous doctrine, but what was the norm? What was the expectation? What happened? By and large, whenever this happened throughout the New Testament. In Acts 2, 10, and 19, the Bible is explicit. That when the Holy Spirit came on people in this way, they responded by speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 8, we know something happened that others could readily observe. And in Acts chapter 9, while we don't actually witness Saul of Tarsus being filled with the Spirit, we know from his later writings that he prayed in tongues a lot. And so, my conclusion is this. Following the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the ability to speak in tongues is released, making it the New Testament norm. I do not espouse a doctrinal position that makes it some test or some proof of having had you know, some special thing with God. But it does seem clear to me it's a blessing made available to God's children and released when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a great deal of confusion about this particular gift as people have taken lots of verses of Scripture out of context and have tried to apply them where they don't. So let me take a couple of minutes and deal with just a few of the questions and misunderstandings about the gift of tongues. And one of them surrounds the very first appearance of the gift in Acts chapter 2. We've already read multiple times in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. But the passage continues. It goes on to say, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because... Each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own language? Now, some people have read this passage from Acts chapter 2 and concluded that that's what the gift of tongues is, and that's the way it's supposed to work. In fact, the very earliest 20th century Pentecostals believed that the gift of tongues was a missionary gift designed so that you can go anywhere in the world, start speaking in tongues, and whoever was there would hear you in their native language. As a result of that, many of those early Pentecostal pioneers sold everything they had, trucked off across the globe. Sadly, when they got off the train or when they got off the boat and went into town and started speaking in tongues, everyone looked at them confused. As a result, many of those early Pentecostal missionaries returned home dejected. But all of that begs the question, why were they wrong? First, you need to notice that in Acts 2-4, when the people speak in tongues, everyone hears them in their native language. But the gift of tongues is mentioned multiple times after that in the Bible, and that particular gift of understanding never happens again. As far as we can tell, that was a one-time experience in the New Testament. Additionally, in writing about the gift of tongues, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Apostle Paul writes this, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, to God, but, to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. Adding in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, even the person speaking in tongues doesn't understand what he's saying. So if tongues isn't a gift intended to cause people to be able to miraculously understand you in their native language, what is the purpose of the gift of tongues? And the, the answer really is threefold. The first thing you need to understand is that the gift of tongues has both a public and a private expression. 
a public and a private dimension, a public and a private usage. Regarding the public expression of the gift, in which someone might stand up in a gathering like this and begin to speak out a message in tongues, the Bible says that requires an interpretation. And when that happens, and someone speaks out in a public setting, a message in tongues, which is then interpreted, that functions basically the same way as a prophetic message. You'll find it described by the Apostle Paul, who writes, for this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue, and he's talking here in the context of a public setting, in the context of a church service, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. Adding a few verses later, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Now, some people take this to say, uh, you can't pray in tongues unless you can interpret it. That's not at all what the Bible says. That's not all the context in which Paul's writing. He says, be quiet in the church and speak to yourself and God. Go ahead and pray quietly to yourself and God. Go ahead and do that quietly to yourself and God. Just don't do it out loud in the church if there's no interpretation, if there's no gift of interpretation ready to come. So the more common expression of the gift, then, rather than the public expression, the more common expression is the private use, or what I sometimes call the devotional use of the gift of tongues. When spirit-filled people pray or sing in tongues. The Bible also refers to that as praying or singing in the Holy Spirit, praying or singing in the Spirit. And this private or devotional use of the gift of tongues is an empowerment from the Holy Spirit meant to enhance, to deepen, to expand your prayer life, and meant to strengthen you internally in your spirit. The Apostle Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 2 that when you speak in tongues in that way, you speak directly to God and utter mysteries with your spirit. He says in verse 4, when you speak in tongues that way, you edify, you strengthen or build up yourself. He says in verses 16 and 17, when you do that, you're praising God with your spirit. In fact, he says you're truly giving thanks well. And Jude writes in his epistle and exhorts his readers to build themselves up in their most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. So if praying in the Holy Spirit is meant primarily to expand and deepen your prayer life, and to build you up on the inside, what was happening in Acts chapter 2? When all those people heard the apostles from all those, all those people from all those different countries heard the apostles speaking in their own native language. And the answer is that was a miraculous sign and a wonder. The Bible talks a lot about signs and wonders. A, a, a sign is basically something that points to something that's a miraculous event, a miraculous occurrence that points you where to go or points you toward the Lord, that points you in the right direction, just like a sign would do on the road. When you're driving along, a sign tells you, here's the way to get to Gatlinburg. A wonder is a miraculous occurrence that grabs your attention, it arrests you, and causes you to stop and wonder. To, to, to stop and, and marvel, it gets your attention. So this miracle of understanding that occurs in Acts chapter 2 certainly got the crowd's attention. It was a sign to them, Peter himself said, that, that what Joel had prophesied was now beginning to come to pass, and it made the crowd more willing to listen when Peter stood up to preach. So let me just close this morning with sharing briefly a little bit of my own testimony at least in this matter. When I was in high school and, and, and college, I was a pretty serious Christian. I read the Bible a lot. Uh, I, I may have been able to quote more Scripture uh, um, then than I can now. In fact, I'm pretty sure I could. I read the Bible a lot. I wanted to live it out. 
But during my junior year in college, I became really, really hungry for God. I was reading through the book of Acts over and over and over again. And I'd look at the people in the book of Acts, and I'd look back at me, and I'd look at what was going on in the book of Acts, and I would look back at me, and I was getting very upset. I was getting very hungry. I was getting very distraught at at, at all the things I saw in my life that I did not like. My heart began to burn for more. Uh, And and I would go to to pray and talk to the Lord about what was going on in me. And and, and I would be desperate to commune with God and talk about these things. And it, it was like the words would fall out of my mouth and crash to the floor. Something was roiling inside of me, desperate to talk to God about, so desperately wanting to connect with God. And my words failed me more miserably than I can describe for you. This went on for well over a month. And finally, my prayer became, Lord, change me or kill me. And I want to promise you in the entirety of my life, I have never prayed anything I meant more than that. And I began to pray that often. Lord, change me or kill me. I do not want to continue like this. Eventually, and by the way, as this was going on, I was still reading through the book of Acts, and I kept finding this this, this encounter with the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and I began reading other materials on the subject so that finally one night, January 17th to be exact, I won't tell you the year because that will tell you when I was a junior in college. At 12.45 in the morning, sitting on the floor with my Bible beside me, I asked the Lord to fill me with the Holy Spirit. Based on my reading up until that point, I was convinced of two things. Number one, I was convinced God was going to answer my prayer. And number two, I was convinced that tongues would be released somehow for me. And so I began to try and pray. Whatever little sound I might think popped into my head. Initially, my mind fought that. But as I continued to press through for a moment, not terribly long, eventually the words began to come and flow more freely. And I want to tell you as plainly as I am standing in front of you right now, I have no idea. I have no idea what I was saying. I have no idea what words were coming out of my mouth. But I know for absolutely certain it was everything I had been trying to pray for over a month and couldn't say in English. Whatever had been roiling inside of me, whatever had been stirring inside of me, whatever had been percolating in me, desperately trying to say to God, but completely incapable of saying in English, I knew I was saying it. And the release that I experienced internally, I cannot describe to you. Now, based on my study, of the New Testament evidence up to that point, I was also convinced that once the Holy Spirit comes on you in that way and there's a release of the gift of tongues in that devotional sense, then you can from that point on pray in the Spirit anytime you want to. And that has absolutely been my experience. And I can tell you that the more I have exercised this particular gift, the more fluent and the more comfortable I have become with it. To the point where I tell you, I can't sit down and pray for any length of time without my spirit at some point being stirred And I end up praying in the Spirit as well as in English. Let me tell you, after we prayed up here, we prayed with Christian, we prayed for the law. I sat down for the first portion of the next song. I was praying in the Spirit rather than singing along with you. That just stirs in me now because it's simply become fundamental. It's just a normal part of my devotional life 
my experience in God. So let me conclude with this. And by the way, I'm going to say, I don't think I'm that crazy. Uh, I consider myself to be pretty conservative, uh, theologically and every other way. Um, I just think this is normal, biblical, New Testament Christianity. So I conclude with this. According to the Bible, and based on my own personal experience, I believe the gift of tongues is a blessing. It's a good gift from a very good God. Offered to all his children, released in them with the baptism or the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The gift of tongues, I want to assure you on the authority of Scripture, with the integrity of God in the balance. The gift of tongues is nothing to be afraid of. It is not to be scoffed at. It is not to be looked down on. And it is not to be ignored. It is rather a good gift from a loving, good God. And I recognize there is so much to this. If you'd like to talk about it some more, if you have lots of questions or you're just really angry right now, I will be right down here after the service. And I'll talk or I'll listen as long as you need. But for now, let's pray. Father God, once again, as always, I thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. You've given us the Holy Scriptures to show us who you are, to show us how you are, to show us who we are, and how we are supposed to be. Lord, help us walk more closely with you through the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, listening and living in communion with him, living lives that line up more closely with what you've shown us in the Bible. We trust you and we love you and we ask you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.